So this week, I am sharing a really exciting announcement. And if you're listening live this week, I'm also bringing back one part of my three-part series on how to unlock the power of ChatGPT. And I'm doing both of these things because I just launched a new ChatGPT resource for nonprofits that I am so, so excited about. It's the nonprofit ChatGPT headquarters. So for those of you who are longtime listeners, you have heard me talk about ChatGPT before. I am really bought into this tool. It is not some fancy, super techie tool that needs to be built out and figured out. It should be as integrated into your workflow and as simple as Google Docs. It's a capacity builder and a time saver. And my goal is to make it easy for organizations, particularly small and growing organizations where time and money and capacity are really an issue to tap into the power of ChatGPT. If you aren't, you're leaving capacity on the table and I want to help you solve that problem. So I took the questions and the conversations that I've been having with nonprofits for the last really six or seven months and turned it into a concrete tool, which is one of my favorite things to do. The nonprofit ChatGPT headquarters is an all-in-one workspace that supports you at every phase of using ChatGPT in your workflow, from giving you ideas to giving you prompts that you can cut and paste right into ChatGPT, to giving you an already built out place to save and organize the prompts that you like, the personalities that you try, and all of the work that you do using ChatGPT. So, If you are still on the fence about ChatGPT, listen to this week's episode. If you're listening to a different episode and hearing this preview, head on over to this week's episode and get inspired. And when you're ready to take the next step and start saving you and your team hours of time and brain energy every week, you can head to brookrichiebabbage.com backslash ChatGPT dash HQ and grab the workspace. Enjoy. Hi, thanks so much for tuning into this week's episode of the Nonprofit Mastermind Podcast. Each week, I do a deep dive into the strategies and mindset behind launching, scaling, and leading a high-impact nonprofit. You are listening to episode number 32. So I've been reflecting on some of the incredible conversations that I've had with folks over the life of this podcast this year, and I wanted to revisit some of the early conversations that I had about leadership in the next normal. I wanted to dissect that topic and pull apart some of the themes that my guests unearthed about what they feel it will mean to be an effective and whole self-leader in the world that is being rebuilt in real time as we head out of COVID. So this week, I'm looking at one question that I found myself sitting with. And it's about the ways in which our traditional models of leadership can fail us in the real world (laughs) as actual leaders. And I'm doing this by combining a few of my past conversations from the early next normal conversations and pulling together pieces that reflect on, on this theme. So the first snippet you'll hear is a bit from my conversation with Tanae Howard and Zarita Ricks. We talk about how leadership should reflect at its best who we are. 
what is moving us and how we are fueled, that the true definition of the practice of leadership is not external. It's not just sort of skills and management and strategy. It's about bringing our whole selves into the practice of stewarding a mission that we care about. Then in my conversation with Jill, we explore how so often this isn't actually the lived experience of executive directors and particularly founders as they grow their organization. If it is true that leadership is at best an an expression of our values and what move us, then why as executive directors do we find ourselves so often just working to make payroll or keep the doors open? without actually being engaged in what made us want to start or run the organization in the first place? How does the model of executive director leadership so often fail us in this way? Finally, my conversation with Katie Rubin explores another, perhaps more pernicious failure of traditional leadership, and that's the myth of the singular solitary leader, sort of out in front innovating and pulling the organization along by the sheer power of will or personality. This can be especially true for founders, and it's dangerous for both the organization and the leader. It creates a dynamic that renders the actual people doing work in and alongside the organization invisible. It also obfuscates the impact of systems on both the leader and the organization more broadly. For example, if funding and program success and strategic partnerships and things like that rise and fall on the shoulders of an individual, it's far easier not to see or address the very real impact of race and gender and systemic generational power imbalances and inequities on things like access to networks and how space is taken up in a boardroom. So this week and for the coming weeks, I'll be revisiting and curating a few collections of these conversations all around this theme of leadership. My hope is that the conversations will give you some food for thought in your own practice of leadership. To help with that, I'm also including a short download with this episode, which will include the transcripts of the full interviews, not just the snippets, as well as some prompts for you to use as journal prompts or conversation or thought prompts about how to actually apply the lessons from Tanae and Zarita and Jill and Katie to your own practice of leadership. You can find this download at richiebabbage.com backslash next normal leadership lessons. Enjoy. Hi, Tanae and Zarita. How are you? Hello. Hi, Brooke. Welcome. How are you? It's a warm Friday. Not really. <laughs> Middle of pandemic New York. Warmish. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm really, really glad to be talking to you, ladies. I just... You know, I know you both, and you are now meeting one another officially for the first time. And when I think about who I wanted to talk with about this next normal and about leadership in this next normal, you both came to mind. And I wanted to have the conversation with all of us together because, as you both know, in various spaces we've been in, I love talking with other Black women leaders. I love being in community. And I think what I've been trying to talk about with this next normal series about, you know, what does sustainability look like? What does the next normal look like? What does leadership look like? It's a great conversation for us to have. So welcome. Thank you for for joining me. 
So I'm going to start off by sort of going right to the, the heart of it. <laughs> you both began your leadership journeys at Opening Act and Sadie National Leadership Project here in New York right as the pandemic was starting. And your experience of leading has really followed the arc of this pandemic. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about what that's been like. Do you think your experience of leadership and your understanding of leadership has been shaped by the pandemic? Has it been hard? What was that like? <laughs> it was crazy. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I'm just gonna, you know, we'll just put go that right out there. there. Yeah. Just go right there. But I, you know, that unexpected, crazy, unanticipated, all those are adjectives that I feel like I use on a daily basis when I'm, you know, meeting someone maybe for the first time, they're like, oh, you know, how's, how are things been? And I'm like, they've been like peculiar, right? (laughs) Because like I had the opportunity to be in the same space with our team, right? I don't know, you know, if you've had that experience too, Zarita, where it's like, getting to know a whole new group of folks via this very weird kind of space. So, you know, the normal like ticks that someone might have or the places where they like congregate and, you know, just the flow of the energy. And I think personally, I'm someone who really appreciates and listens to and connects into energy and kind of, you know, what folks are saying versus what I you know, I could tell that they're feeling. And so I think it's it's been a lot of recalibration to try and get to know folks and really, and I think especially as a Black woman leader for me, you know, as a, as Tanae the leader, getting to know people is so core to my leadership, <laughs> you know, and really understanding who they are and respecting who they are and, you know, and so like having to pretty much grow a skill set of being able to do that in a virtual world has been a lot of the last 11 months for me. I went to my personal library and looked at all of my leadership books and said, you all lied to me. I know. <laughs> we got to write our own book, Zarita. We have to write our own book. And I mean, like to lead in crisis or, or you are to step into leadership and then a global crisis hits the world. And, you know, just as Tanae said, I am very relational. Yeah. And so I was fortunate enough to have, the, you know, about 30 days with my team, you know, in person, mm-hmm. which was great. But I mean, we were still like in that early onboarding phase, right? Like getting mm-hmm. to know each other, nice, nice, you know, <laughs> and a month later it was, oh my goodness. And so, you know, people are looking to you for answers. And so I, I learned that I had to lead and learn and go and grow at the same time. Like mm-hmm. there was so many dichotomies of leadership that just like, it was like a collision. You know, as a black woman, I, and, and Tanae and Brooke, you probably are both the same. We know how to respond to crisis. We are accustomed to crisis, right? There really isn't a moment where we are not, especially in the work, um, nonprofit work, working with young people, there's not a moment where you don't recognize that we are in crisis as a people, but more specifically to young people that we are helping to develop. And so I wasn't too like taken aback by the crisis. I was really taken aback by the magnitude of what it requires to be a leader, 
right? And to kind of, what do you mean? Oh, the emotional burden. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, love people, care about people, very compassionate. I've been told that I'm hypersensitive, mm-hmm. but that emotional burden of just wanting people to know, I'm going to do everything that I can to make sure that you're okay. Yeah. Right. And so, and there were just nights where I did not sleep because I felt the, not only did I feel it, but you know, Zoom is a lot different than in a, in a mm-hmm. you know, an office space where people can kind of redirect their eyes or, you know, they can kind of, you know, go to the, get a cup of coffee to Husa, but it was just raw emotion. Yeah. And so there was this, this pressure and this real desire to help people to understand we're in this together while also being cognizant. I don't know what tomorrow is going to be. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, Yeah. here we are. Here we are. (laughs) I think that that uncertainty, that piece around the uncertainty is kind of, um, has been central because we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring both personally, you know what I'm saying? Like thinking about, I was just talking earlier today about all the elders that have been lost, not, you know, maybe not direct connections, but in my circles of like friends and circles of community. Right. And, you know, so I'm like losing folks like, and and I understand the emotional weight of that. Like I know, and plus our frontline team who are working directly with young people, those young people are experiencing things that then they're holding, you know? And so it, it kind of, as the leader (laughs) comes to you in magnitudes, right? Like it's, it's a kind of exponential emotional kind of, holding that you have to figure out how to do. I think the other thing that I, you made me think of as you were speaking, Zarita, is just like how much the books were not the place that I could go to, right? But it was a real, I had to like, I think very quickly learn how to like trust myself even more deeply than I ever have before. I'm also a new ED. I haven't been an ED before. And, you know, as like confident as I am in myself, as fly as I think I am, as like quick a learner, this is all I, you know, I had a plan for how we were going to ease into this new position that was very different. You know, like I had a plan, 90 day plan, 180 day plan, you know, all the plans. And those plans were like, no, they were not doing it. So having to like realizing, especially in those first couple of weeks, I'm like, oh, I have to trust my gut. And I have to also trust that this gut, right? This, these insides are based on my values, which are in line with the organizational's value, you know, organization's values. And they're based on my like deep humanity, right? And I think that that's another thing that as, you know, and lots of my identities feed into this as a black woman, as a mama, as a sister, as a daughter, you know, as uh, as an African, right? Someone in the African diaspora, like, you know, there's such a deep connection, like my connection to, you know, being human with other people, like it's so, it's so important. And so it was a lot of times I wasn't asking the question, like, what should a leader do in this situation? But just it's like, I literally had to be like, okay, Tanae, just tap in. Like, what does Tanae need to do? And what Tanae is bringing to the table is enough to help make this decision. And it was really hard to trust that. It's it's still really hard to trust that. But when you don't got no choice and <laughs> you have to kind of move forward. It's really powerful. I mean, there's so many things that I just love about what you're saying and the two that I will lift up are that perhaps there isn't actually ever a distinction between Mm. what would a leader do and what would I do, 
right? That that distinction, that the dichotomy of that question is false. Right? That it always is, what would I do in this moment? How would I move forward? And that is being a leader. That is acting like a leader, always. That perhaps having to navigate this pandemic has made that more clear, right? And so maybe in part of this sort of next world after the pandemic, more people will remember, no, it isn't, what should a leader do? Always ask, what would I do? I trust my values. And that, that's part of our work as leaders is to be brave and to trust our instincts and to not accept the dichotomy of like, there is what leaders do and there is what Tanae does or there is what Zarita does or there is what Brooke does. You know, I just, I think that's, that's really powerful. One of the things that I thought a lot about since stepping down from that role in my own life is how much is packed into that role, right? How much is expected of, for most organizations, a single person, a single executive director. And, you know, I talk with a lot of EDs who are really amazing in one, two, three of the seven things that EDs have to be really great at, but not only aren't great at some of the other things, but feel guilty about that, right? Don't want to spend their energy becoming a finance whiz, <laughs> but that is expected of them, right? And often even defined how, how successful they are is defined in part by their ability to learn and get great at things maybe they were never intended to learn or get great at. So do, does that expansiveness, how might that expansiveness apply to people in leadership roles also? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, for a while now, have really been thinking about executive director roles and job descriptions and what what is expected and how much executive directors hold. I mean, I have never had a conversation with an executive director who wasn't working, you know, every single night and every weekend and was always really, really, really worried about some aspect or usually multiple aspects of the work and just thinking about how how is that sustainable? How do you have it so that I know so many executive directors who've left and they're not saying, oh, I wonder where I'll be an executive director again. They're all saying never again, never again will I ever do that. And so in thinking about that and in thinking about the question that you asked about different people have different strengths and things that they're good at, I would really love to see more organizations and institutions exploring a model of co-executive directors. How can you have somebody who loves people and programs and really being the external voice partnered with a co-executive director who loves the the finance and the detail and the policy and the behind the scenes, not so visible, but equally important work. What amazing things could happen with that shared responsibility and could an executive director actually take a vacation and not check their email if they had a co-person who was like, you know, holding it down for the week or two weeks. And so I think that that, again, going back to thinking about what are people good at, I ran the Red Hook Initiative for almost 19 years. And at year 17, I still had my hand in running a program, but I made sure that no one, I'm like, don't tell anyone that I'm doing this. And it was the thing that I loved and I wanted to be in a room with young people and, you know, putting ideas on the wall on chart paper, but I made sure that <laughs> hardly anyone knew that that was happening because it wasn't what I was supposed to do, but it 
was what I loved. And I felt like I constantly paid the price for that, right? It was like, oh, I took these two hours to like run a group and be connected to the work, but it's not really what my job was. And therefore, like there are all these other things. And so I think just to go back to think about people's strengths and what they're good at, how do we create space where people could say, yes, I am an executive director and I also happen to run a program because that's what like has meaning to me. Or I'm an executive director and I have a background in social work and I still carry two clients on a caseload to keep me connected to the work in that matters. And I, I don't, you know, I'm sure you could talk to lots of executive directors who might say like, no, no, I'm fine leaving those things behind. But I also know that I think that that passion for the work sometimes gets buried. And I often felt like, oh, I'm watching other people do the fun parts. Well, I have to do the parts that are necessary to keep the doors open. So do you think that your thinking about this has been shaped? Well, let me actually back up and ask this a different way. You stepped down as executive director a little while ago. And I'm wondering if some of these insights sort of came to you while you were in the role or if you've benefited from sort of (laughs) the distance, the time, the ability to actually sleep at night, all of the things that come when we leave the role of executive director. Just more broadly, how do you feel like your perspective on things like sustainable leadership (laughs) has changed since stepping out of that role? Yeah, I don't think that I would have said that so concretely when I was still in it. I think it did require some space and the moments of thinking back and reflecting and just wondering like, how did I possibly do that for so long? And talking to a lot of other part of my own transition process was just talking to lots and lots of founders who had left and executive directors who had transitioned and just asking them, you know, what worked well for you? What didn't? Like, how do you onboard and set a new leader up for success? And so many times in onboarding of my replacement, I felt like I was apologizing, not for anything particular to our organization, but for how the industry <laughs> is set up. And, you know, she would ask a question and I'd be like, well, that's just kind of how it is everywhere. Right. And then feeling bad about them. Like, I'm sorry that it's like that. Or I'm sorry that like, yeah, in order to do your job, you do have to open your computer every night. Right. And feeling like, but maybe if you do it better or you find the right thing, you'll find a way to not do that knowing that every other executive director who I know also does that. Right. And so I think having that space and distance and watching someone else very closely stepping into that and realizing, oh, this is a lot more than it was advertised to be and very willingly saying, I, I'm you know, going to do this. But I think I just have been thinking a lot about sustainability. And I've started working with some, a few people who are, who are founding or thinking of starting organizations. And from the beginning, I feel like you know, for, with some people who don't even yet have a 501c3 and there is the, you know, some of the advice that I'm, that I'm offering is don't set it up this way or think about how to not be relying 100% on donations. Is there an earned income aspect of your model that you can build? And really thinking about all the things that make it so difficult and challenging in the areas where I think the nonprofit sector is broken and start to think about how could that be re-envisioned or how do we set it up so you know the next generation 
of executive directors um, when they leave. It's not saying never again, that they are saying, oh, where can I take, like, what's the next organization where I want to go and use these, these muscles and the skills that I've developed? I think that's one of the most pernicious aspects of the role. You highlighted that little nagging voice that says, well, maybe somebody could do this better, right? Maybe the problem is not actually that the job as constructed is not sustainable or tenable. Maybe the problem is that I am not working hard enough. (laughs) I've started talking with a lot of the EDs that I work with about this whole like, you know, you hear work smarter, not harder. And that sounds really trite, but it actually may involve doing some of what you're saying, which is saying, okay, this is the part that I am not going to spend the extra 30 hours this week doing or learning. I'm going to find a partner. I'm going to find, you know, a team that can do this better. But I think even more deeply rooted is forgiving ourselves for even having that thought. And I was shocked by the number of conversations I've had over the last, you know, eight years with EDs where every single one of them at some point has said, well, if I were just better (laughs) at this job, um, Mm -hmm. then it wouldn't be so hard. There has to be something, even though I won't admit it to my board or my funders, there's something I'm doing wrong. And so I love what you're saying, you know, in the perspective I think you gain by not being in the 80 hour week that actually no, there's a structural flaw, right? It isn't that we're doing something wrong. Absolutely. And I think for women leaders in particular, that it's even more tends to somehow be, I'm not good enough, smart enough, fast enough, right? I mean, for me, it was like, well, I didn't, I don't have a master's degree. There must be something that I missed, right? But I'm not getting that, I mean, which now is hilarious. Well, for many years, I was like, oh, it's because I'm not educated enough that somehow this is, this is hard for me. I mean, who knows the, the number of different <laughs> stories that I had over the years of like why I didn't think that it was working, but it was always blaming myself, right? That um, there's something that I'm doing that's wrong, not recognizing like, oh, in order to keep the doors open and running, it's requiring all this. That's, that's way too much. Um, and I think also the not complaining, right? I, I think that people kind of suck it up. And because there is a bit of self-doubt or thinking like, oh, it must be me. There's less demanding of, of boards or of funders or of outside people saying like, no, you're asking to, like, this is not possible. And I think that very much in the nonprofit sector, everyone, you know, it's not at all uncommon for executive directors to just have the mindset of like, I just have to find a way to do this and it matters. And the consequence of not finding a way is telling someone who really needs something that they can't have it. And I'm not, that's not why I do this work. And so I think that you just find people who will, yep, I'm going to stay up until three o'clock in the morning to write the grant because if I don't, then people won't have this thing that they need. And if I do, then maybe they will. Because we don't know for sure. I'll also do that same thing again tomorrow, right? <laughs> and so it's it, amazing that it's all of these incredible attributes. The thing is people who are dedicated and willing to kind of stop at nothing. And I will you know, jump through all these hurdles to do the work that matters to my community or my population or whoever it is. And, and in so, so many ways, it's so selfless. And yet at the same time, like where is that leading to burnout or... Just people saying like, oh, I can't, I can't do this anymore, or I'm not, 
as effective because I haven't been able to take an actual break or vacation or, or days off. Yeah, one of the reasons that I've been looking forward to this conversation is because the very nature of what you have done, you know, for the last however many years and are doing now is about shaping our sort of normal, right? What counts as normal, how decisions are made, who gets to be at the proverbial table. And the series of conversations I'm having is about what it takes to reimagine our next normal. And so These issues of who's at the table, and that's come up in a lot of these conversations with folks, that issue is just like really present right now. And you mentioned something that I want to dig a little deeper into, and I know you and I have had conversations about this for years. As a white leader doing this work, I know that you grapple with exactly what you just said. What is my role? How are you grappling with that now, particularly in sort of the wake of so many of things that have happened this year? Yeah. I mean, I think that one of the things that has become clear in my work and thinking about it in relation to all the things happening this year and the Black Lives Matter movement, which has been going on and is growing and growing. And what I was sort of starting to think about before in in terms of this taking up space and the space that I take up and sort of what is the value add that I can bring to a process and weighing that <laughs> against the space that I take up. Really being thoughtful and, and very critical about how much space I do need to take up. So for instance, here I'm in the UK right now in Greater Manchester, the Greater Manchester Combined Authority, which is a local government and this Homelessness Action Network, which is intersector big network here in in those 10 boroughs, have asked or decided to use legislative theater as a tool to create their five-year homelessness prevention strategy. And so one of the things that we planned in that process was that alongside creating this year-long process, three plays creating this prevention strategy, there should be an intensive facilitator training process with folks who have experienced homelessness or are currently experiencing homelessness to be paid, yeah, and to go along with that. And we just had the first big show, which was entirely facilitated by these five facilitators who are really interesting group of people who are bringing like arts leadership and community leadership and their lived experience and their experience around around disability access and around Islamophobia and around being a refugee and around race and around gender. And they're bringing that to the process. So, you know, I, I was really thinking about it a few weeks ago, like, the, the event was talking about who's in power at, you know, the Department of Work and Pensions and, the, you know, this office and this office. But the event can be modeling who's in power even asking those questions in even a deeper way that I think that I ever could imagine doing that in my past life. So I guess that's what I've been thinking about is challenging myself as a, yeah, to think about where can I bring value and where can I take up less space and how can those go together? And what's the balance? Yeah. Are you seeing these principles of legislative theater or of, I don't know, sharing power is exactly the way to talk about it, but redistributing power maybe play themselves out on a broader scale as we make our way through this year where so much, so many of the norms have just kept the same groups, the same people in power are being shaken up. Are you seeing more people have the kinds of conversations and engage in the kind of work that needs 
to be engaged in in order to move us forward? Or do you still feel like it's pretty sort of isolated to events or, you know, things like that? I think it's a great question. I've been thinking that maybe... I mean, I feel like yes and no, kind of, right? Yeah. And, and, and I was just thinking when you were asking the question that I feel like it's sometimes being isolated to individuals or individual instances. Yeah. So we see some leader crash because, <laughs> right? Because everything comes out about all their history of racism and, or, or their history of sexism or their or Me Too movement, or, right? We see, we see someone crash and the story is about that person kind of and it is also I I mean certainly it's not that the story is not about the larger movement but I do feel like even in in those instances and then what happens on the flip side is that we see movements like in the in theater in America there's a movement we see you white American theater an incredible movement incredible website we see you WAT it's very powerful and it was it started around June and they with like social media and demands and and then calling out theaters and saying we sent you these demands and you said you would reply by August 7th and you didn't and putting that on social media and so it's amazing and it's so powerful to see this activism and then my kind of I guess my cynical side goes oh but it's still or of course it is still the people who don't have as much power in that space right the people who are not the board members and the artistic directors and the executive directors making demands right and asking for accountability and then asking for them to reply. So when I think about that in relation to sort of seeing one leader at a time crash, yeah. I guess my dream would be that those leaders, like it, it, it can't be on the people asking, the people asking for the demands are doing everything they possibly can. And I think they're doing it super creatively and in like in, in such a powerful way right now, which is very exciting in this moment. And maybe COVID has something to do with that and the way we've sort of reimagined space and communication. It can't be all on them. And so I would love to see those leaders and I've seen it a little bit, but like there's still a whole lot of white, artistic directors, executive directors, you know, CEOs, whoever they are, politicians for sure. Politicians are, are, are driving me nuts these days. <laughs> I mean, here too, right? They're just useless. And I would love to see them say out loud, should I be in this job? Should you be in this job? Should we be taking up this role in the Senate <laughs> for 45 years <laughs> or whatever it is? And then, right, getting complacent and can we be really uh, brave with each other about saying, yeah, am I taking up space that is not helpful? So how do you link the sort of personal piece, the not even personal piece? I guess what's coming to my mind is I do a lot of work around sustainable leadership and, you know, with women who are starting and growing organizations and leading organizations. And in that sphere of things, this idea of like the mythical one person who's going to like lead the organization, you know, who's the innovator and the visionary. And we tend to define things in terms of one person, right? One person is good or one person is bad, not systems are supporting that person or systems are bad. And what I find interesting about what you're like the duality that you're talking about is that it's the same here, right? When one person falls, it's really easy to say, well, that person was bad, right? And then at the same time, you have Black Lives Matter, which is saying no, and all, uh, so many other amazing movements that are saying, no, th- we have bad systems that prop up and support bad actions by people. How do you bring those two conversations 
together so that when one person falls, it becomes a leverage point to say to all the other people who've been in you know, Senate for 45 years, hey, it's not that person, it's the system and you're part of that system. How do you do that? I, I think, think give yeah. us the answer. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I guess I, I think about this a lot. I mean, again, like thinking about leadership, I really... I really think that we're thinking about executive directors just, you know, but based on our experience, I think at some point I started to think not only is it not true that I am so much greater or smarter or anything else, but it is harmful. It's harmful to my organization and to myself, my health, my leadership, my ability to do my job to, to receive that message and to act on that message. And I don't think it's helping me to put me in a position of elevated status or the work, right? Or the movement. I think that we have a, when we talk about systems, we have a system, we have a media, we have, you know, even like, you know, yeah, executive director breakfast clubs and, you know, these like set up by organizations. I think that maybe all of those things are wrong. Because they're separating out, they're they're holding up power, and that power, and I guess what I've been thinking, this is just where I'm at right now, is that power in one person or in few people has no choice but to be bad, like has no choice but to be harmful. This is going to be really embarrassing because I know I'm going to get this wrong, but Animal Farm, right? Yeah. yeah. Power corrupts, absolutely. Right, right, right. 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 Power is right. Like corrupting of right. the power yeah yeah and it's not that the person in power is bad it's it's the power and and the actions that that will take towards other people and i don't know that necessarily i think that we should never have one person in power of anything but i do think maybe that all of these systems could have really restrictive term limits Mm -hmm. (laughs) i think that we could not tell stories this way Mm -hmm. like we could not say oh the executive director's leaving and everything you know we should stop having that story it should stop being a news announcement we don't make a news announcement when someone else is leaving in the organization i'm not sure i'm just sort of saying these things out loud (laughs) you might come back to me later and i say forget it it's impossible (laughs) you know and it's not that everything else is easy it's not that collaborative work or, you know, flat, flat structures. And I don't know that I mean exactly flat structures. I mean the, the myth around one individual. There's so many ways that I think that's harmful. And I think that that would support those movements to stop holding up those myths. Thank you so much for joining me this week. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you liked this episode, and you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe on Apple or wherever you listen to your podcasts and please share with your friends. And if you extra liked it, I would be honored if you would leave a review. I'd like to share just a few resources before we sign off. If you're the leader of a small six-figure organization between $250,000 and $900,000, and you're ready to scale to the next level of massive impact with your work, I invite you to check out my free training, Scale Your Small Nonprofit to Big Impact, a roadmap to getting the funding, staff, and support you need to hit your first million dollars. You can find the training at richiebabbage.com backslash ready to scale. And finally, if you'd like more leadership resources and strategies and tools delivered right to your inbox, sign up for my weekly newsletter, Leadership Forward 321. Each week, I curate and share three articles, two resources, and a quote on a theme. That's all for now. Have a great week, and I'll see you back here next week for more Mastermind.